The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and this is Stuff You Should Know, Lost on the Mountaintop Edition, but not in Tennessee, because this has nothing to do with the Beverly Hillbillies at all. (laughs) Wow. Mm -hmm. That was a roundabout funny intro. I didn't even know it was coming 30 seconds ago. (laughs) Uh, No, we are not talking about Tennessee. We are talking about um, one of the heroes of uh of mountaineering and mountain climbing certainly uh mr george mallory and the great mystery uh to me unsettled mystery yep. on whether or not he ever made it to the top of Everest. yes Everest. <laughs> <laughs> right so oh boy yeah this is a, a tough start chuck because i just realized <laughs> what i referenced was the davy crockett theme not beverly hillbilly so everybody save your emails okay <laughs> Oh, that's right. All of you Beverly Hillbillies cosplayers, save your save your emails. So, okay, we're talking about Mount Everest. We're not talking about Davy Crockett or the Beverly Hillbillies. We're talking about um, George Mallory and, to a lesser extent, uh, kind of unfairly, but also kind of fairly, uh, his climbing companion, Sandy Irvine. And George Mallory is extraordinarily famous, not just in the climbing community. He's a legend in the climbing community, Chuck. But you and I know about him. I, I knew about Mallory, didn't you, before all this? Uh, Yeah. I at least heard his name, had a general idea about him, right? Sure. Name two other climbers. Exactly. The guy from that free solo documentary. <laughs> Does not count. And, um, and well, all the Sherpa. I mean, we, okay, you sure. know, Ed makes great pains to point out the Sherpa, but uh, suffice to say, all you have to do is go back and listen to our episode, Sherpa Warm Friendly Living, mm-hmm. in which we dedicate an entire episode to the usually nameless Sherpa who are usually standing just out of frame. Mm-hmm. Of some white dude saying, yeah, I climbed Everest again, but here, go ahead and get your picture taken. Right. 
and they they just kind of slowly shove them to the side. But yeah. But um, despite your best efforts, you still managed to prove my point. Yeah. George Mallory is extremely famous, and up to uh, his thirties, it did not look like it was going to go that way because he started out this very famous mountain climber and mountaineer, an early mountain climber and mountaineer too. That's something that I feel is a beat will hit throughout this episode. That these guys that Mallory was climbing with were using, like, they they were making some of their own gear. They were figuring out mountaineering techniques as they went along. It was like a brand yeah. new thing that people were doing, and George Mallory was among the, the earliest people doing that. Yeah, there's that one, uh, I don't know if it was a journalist or somebody, was talking about pictures of the actual attempt to climb Everest, and mm-hmm. he said these guys look like they had gone out for a picnic and were hit by a snowstorm. Yeah, right. And just in how they were dressed, you know, they were in like tweed jackets and stuff. Yeah, and um, hobnail boots, so just like some leather boots with some spikes attached to them, like just nothing you would even climb a hill in these days, let alone Mount Everest, but that's what they were wearing. So George Mallory didn't start out as um, showing signs he was going to be famous. He was a um, kind of a left-leaning, progressive, intellectual school teacher. Um, He did rub elbows with John Maynard Keynes and Virginia Woolf from the Bloomsbury Group. Bloomsbury Group. Pretty cool. Yeah. But that was probably the greatest brush with fame that he had up until he started hitting Mount Everest and making that basically his stated goal in life. Yeah. I mean, he got into hiking and, and mountaineering when he was in his late teens and really fell in love with it. But, you know, as Ed Keenly points out, it was, you know, it was such a new sport that people didn't even really know, like they haven't even charted like the highest mountains in the world mm-hmm. up into a, a very, I mean, what I consider a pretty late point when you think about like expeditions that Lewis and Clark made. It was uh, in 1852 when they finally, finally figured out that Everest was the tallest peak. Yeah. Like, up to 1852, they were basically at the point of, that one's tall. Oh, look at that one. That's a tall one, too. Yeah, I wish we could put them next to each other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, there was actually a guy named uh, Radhanth Sikdar, who was an Indian surveyor, who used data that the English had um, produced uh, during their occupation of India um, to calculate just exactly how tall Mount Everest was. Because they really did settle on Everest just by sight. They're like, that might be the tallest mountain we've ever seen. And indeed, it turned out at 29,032 feet, Mount Everest was in the mid-19th century and still is today the tallest mountain in the entire world. And they named it Everest after the director of the survey in India. Of course they did. Sir George (laughs) Everest. But if you asked a Tibetan, what's the name of that big old mountain over there? They would tell you uh, Chomolungma which means mother goddess of the world in Tibetan. So even the Tibetans were like, this is clearly the world's tallest mountain. Yeah, and of course they had, you know, their own names for it, uh, but we generally don't know those names because they would come along later and just name it after just some dude. Right, but we— Some some Englishman. I mean, Chomolongma, that's definitely one of them. No, I know, but— Ask 10 people what Chumalonga is. (laughs) Right. And name two other famous climbers. Yes. But the long and short of it is, or I guess the tall and short of it is, they realized that Everest was the tallest thing in 1852, but big deal. They couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. They could just kind of gaze upon it. It would be decades and decades 
before anyone even thought that they might be able to climb Everest because here's the deal. Getting to Everest and climbing it is uh, like ascending the peak is one thing, but just getting to that point Mm -hmm. is, I don't know, 90% of the battle. I would say easily. Most people think you look at a mountain, you just climb up the base and, and go up to the side and you're done. But no, you have to basically traverse mountain ranges. Mountains just don't exist on their own. They're part of ranges. And you don't really think about it, but you have to climb all these other little mini mountains to get to the big mountain in the first place. And this can be walks of, you know, dozens or scores of miles. And not walk. It's not a straight walk over a plain and then you get to the edge of the mountain and you go up. Like, you're going up and up and up. And you're existing at higher and higher altitudes, which the English people who um, who were doing this at first... were not used to. So they were doing this with basically altitude sickness and all the stuff that comes with that. All right. So let's go to 1920. And the stage is sort of set to where they feel like it might be possible to actually accomplish something like this. Mm -hmm. And the Royal Geographic Society got together with the Alpine Club uh, to form, and they didn't like permanently come together, but they worked together to form the Mount Everest Committee to say, all right, let's 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 give this a go, old boy. And they got permission from Tibet in 1921 to go on a scouting trip. And this was a trip where they would just kind of figure out how to climb Everest. Like, it wasn't like they just said, all right, let's give it a go mm-hmm. and see if we can get to the top. Like, they had to take uh, several trips just to sort of map out uh, what they thought would be a feasible way to even try to get to the top. Right. Uh, apparently, no one from Europe had been within 60 miles of Everest itself. So this was all new, uncharted territory, basically, for these guys. And again, it's really important to say, like, we're we're going to be telling the story from the English point of view. And like you said, the Sherpa rarely figure into that, um, right. with the big exception of Tenzing Norgay, who's, who officially was the first to summit Everest with um, Edmund Hillary. But um, these these guys weren't doing this alone. They had, uh, depending on the expedition and how much money it had, scores to hundreds of Sherpas, like attending them, helping them climb, moving their stuff, um, and just basically making life much easier on these guys. That said, I really don't want to um, undermine the amount of effort and strenuousness oh, yeah. that these these guys yeah and talent that these guys underwent in just figuring out how to get to Everest to start on that first 1921 expedition yeah it, it's really cool to read um contemporary yes contemporary <laughs> yeah. a, accounts of what modern <laughs> climbers think of Mallory and his um, not not just tenaciousness, but his actual talent level and his climbing style mm-hmm. uh, was apparently very unique and uh, just revered today by modern climbers. Is and, and you know it's not to take anything away from what anyone does today because what people can accomplish today is amazing. But mm-hmm. they accomplish these things based generally on you know they can be taught by other people and like this is how it's done. Like Mallory and the gang were figuring this out for the first time. And by the way. I might have said Hillary instead mm-hmm. of Mallory yeah, because I'm just thinking of climbing hills. <laughs> right. And we should just go ahead and say, just to get any confusion out of the way, um, Edmund Hillary summited Everest in, I think, 1953. 
We're talking about the first expeditions to Everest again in 1920. Mallory and Hillary, yeah. I don't believe, ever met. They were of different generations of climbers. But yeah, Mallory absolutely. was considered one of the, the pioneers, as were the, the other men in his expeditions that he went on. All right. So if I said Hillary, I meant Mallory. Are we all good? I think we're good, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So they got permission again for this trip in 1921, mm-hmm. and Mallory was in his early 30s. He was uh, included in this first group and I think was really chomping at the bit to do so. He has uh, a wife and three young kids at home, but really nothing could stop him from from going on this first scouting trip. No, and he was 33 on the 1921 trip. And he says basically, hey, um, uh, dear, I'm going to quit my job and leave you and the children for, I don't know, seven months at least to go on this expedition. See ya. And that's where he went. But he did say uh, to his wife, here's what I'll do. I'll take this picture <laughs> of you, babe, and I will carry it with me always. And I will put, I will place you at the top of Everest uh, to live there forevermore encased in ice when I get up there. Yeah. And I'm sure he probably took it with him on the first expedition, but the first expedition wasn't planning on summiting Everest. But from what I gather from Mallory, he would he would have been down to give it a shot that first time out. Like, that's how obsessed with Everest that, that man became. Right. And he actually was really successful. The, the expedition was. This was, again, the first expedition by the English to map... Um, Everest, and they managed to do it. They managed to find a way onto Everest, what's called the the North Col, which is a ridge that connects one mountain to another. And they found that North Col, which is the way still today, if you're coming from the north, from the Tibetan side up Everest, you still use that route that these guys mapped in 1921. Yeah, and it's it's important to point out um, which side that they would have gone up then and what side you go up now, mm-hmm. because uh, there is a route uh, that China kind of secured and basically has held that Americans can't go, mm-hmm. and that'll that'll be a key uh, sort of later on in this mystery. So put a pin in that. Yeah, because China invaded Tibet in 1950 and said uh, this side of the mountain is closed to Westerners. But this happened, that happened three decades after Mallory and his expeditions. Um, so they were using that north route. And still to this day, the north route is considered technically more difficult because it requires you to spend more time at higher elevations with, you know, its attendant lower oxygen concentration, which makes the whole thing way harder. And then secondly, the way in through the north route requires 22 miles of walking just to get from base camp to the top, whereas the south route, which is what Westerners use today, coming from the Nepalese side, is about 12 and three-quarter miles of walking. Nothing to sneeze at still, but oh, yeah. it just kind of underscores the just how hard the, the things that these guys were doing with zero equipment. All right. So, I think it's a good time for a break. Sure. I'm going to finally sort out the difference between Hillary and Mallory. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounds like an 80s sitcom. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to work all that out, and we'll be right back. Stuff you should know. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling 
is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. 
Okay, we're back. Um, and I want to go over a little more about when you, how you get to a mountain. And we don't have to go in great detail, but um, you're basically going up one mountain to get to that ridge that connects that smaller mountain to Everest, the taller mountain, right? But to get there requires hiking, mountain mm-hmm. climbing, yeah. ice climbing, oh, yeah. rock climbing, uh-huh. um, every kind of climbing you can imagine. And one of the first things you have to do, no matter whether, whether you come from the north route or the south route, is cross a glacier. And that is way harder than it sounds. Yeah. I mean, th- this thing is, you know, surrounded in part by glaciers. And like you said, you're, you're, there are so many different disciplines if you're going to do something like Everest, and especially in 1921, 22, that I just don't think we can overstate like the near impossibility of this feat. At right. the time. Yeah, especially with the glacier, there's crevasses. They can be really deep, um, you know, 100 or more feet deep, and you can fall into that and die. There can be ice slides, also known as uh, avalanches. They can come and bury you. There's something called, I think, sea cores, which are house-sized blocks of ice that you sometimes have to climb that you could also topple and be crushed by. Like, that's just the glacier. That's like the first obstacle to get toward the mountain. And again, they were doing this with zero equipment. Yeah. I mean, we did we did a whole episode on ice climbing, right? We totally did. And I remember that's thinking— why, That's why we talked about sea cores. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. I thought it sounded familiar. And I also was like, yeah, ice climbing is really hard. I, I know that from experience and researching it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this one, uh, the, the Sherpa episode was really good. Ice climbing was good. I believe we did one on dead bodies on Everest. Yeah. And way the, long time ago. We did one on altitude sickness, too. Yeah. So this all comes together. Uh, point is, it's really, really hard. And there are so many ways to die. Yeah. What else wants to kill you up there, Chuck, that they weren't aware of until that 1921 expedition? The Yeti. <laughs> yeah, that's where the Yeti was introduced, or at least the concept was introduced to Westerners who brought it back. Um, and yeah. then I believe on uh, a later, like, 1951 expedition, a guy named Eric Shipton uh, took some photos of what were supposed to be Yeti tracks. And that's when, like, the West really went wild for the Yeti. That's right. So let's catch ourselves up. It's September 24th, 1921, when they reach the North Coal. Mm-hmm. And this is where they're like, all right, we think this is it. We think we have found a path that can actually get us. They didn't realize there would one day be an easier path probably, but they said, we think this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted that uh, not only these expedition trips to sort of map things out, but each subsequent attempt to ascend Everest that ended up in uh, I don't want to say failure, but I guess it is failure if they mm-hmm. didn't accomplish it. Devastation. But each one of yeah, each one of those is really important too because you know every higher peak that you get to, you're able to sort of establish. Uh, of course, not everywhere, but you're able to establish camps along the way, right. and these camps are then used later on uh, as you know base camps like one, two, three, four, five, six, etc. Mm-hmm. In fact, it may have, six might have been the highest camp at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then so But but it's super important to establish that for like all the hikers to come mm-hmm. 
just because it was a failed attempt doesn't mean a lot of great stuff wasn't accomplished. Yeah, because if you are hiking or you're climbing up a mountain and there's a, a higher camp that you're coming up to, you can make your way over the day to that camp and then just stay there for the night. If there's not a higher camp, you have to turn around at some point and make your way to that next lower camp to survive. Because yeah, you cannot good. be caught overnight on Everest, anywhere at these elevations that these guys are hiking at um, without a tent and or a sleeping bag, or you're going to die. That's all there is to it. You, a human being can't survive on the, you know, the higher altitudes of Everest without that kind of stuff. So yes, establishing a camp is an enormous thing. But also they're learning stuff firsthand about how humans respond to low oxygen concentrations, what the weather conditions are like, what time of year you can hike, like every detail is a brand new novel detail that is really crucial in understanding how to get to the top eventually. Yeah, like what time of day you have to start out uh, in order to get up there and safely get back down because some people, including Hillary, yes, Hillary, <laughs> um, and it's a thorny subject, but some people, as, as far as the mystery of Mallory goes, some people don't consider it a successful ascent unless you come back down. Um, and that's kind of the thing. And I think Hillary was one of those and his family also said, Hey, listen, not to slag anyone, but mm. it, we kind of only consider it a success if you go up and you're able to come back down and, and live to tell about it essentially. Yeah. And I think that was, which, a, which is an interesting point. Yeah. But I think that point was made by Hillary, uh, himself, which oh, is no, kind so of I'm like, saying. yeah, he's, yeah. He's like, well, I mean, even if you've made it to the top, it doesn't count. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm doing this interview right now. <laughs> right. I'm sitting here. So um, there's one thing I want to point out that I don't know has become clear yet. It's clear to me because we did this research and I found out what the deal was. But you might be asking yourself, why was mountain climbing so big at this time? Why were these people doing this? And um, there's a really good explanation for that. Everest itself was considered the third pole. Because yeah. people had already made it to the South Pole and the North Pole. We didn't yet have the technology to explore the deep ocean or space. And we had been almost everywhere else on Earth. So this was yeah. like the last place for humans to, I guess, basically conquer or pit their endurance against. And that's why it was so attractive to people. Yes, and that was a very uh, eloquent way to say that. Uh, I think we should mention that Mallory himself is the very person who very famously coined the term because it's there when asked why they would try to do something like this. Yeah. Why climb mountains? Because it's there. That alone makes him just worth remembering, you know? What a yeah. cool response. Absolutely. Why are you going to eat you know, that Big Mac? Because it's there. Right. <laughs> Everything that's ever come since then where somebody says because it's there, you're actually quoting George Mallory. That's right. <laughs> um, all right, so let's talk for a second about oxygen. Um, low oxygen is no good for the human body, and we've mentioned several times that your oxygen levels are uh, very low when you're ascending Everest. Mm -hmm. And uh, these days, they make it really easy on you. It's all, um, you know, the, the, the kind of oxygen they take is very easy to, uh, to take. They make it very uh, user-friendly. But back then, they had like glassed bottles of oxygen that were carried in like wooden crates. And it was a real pain to get there. It was super, super heavy. Um, but they knew at the time, you know, well, they learned that they would absolutely need this stuff. Um, but Mallory was sort of, I don't, I don't think indifferent. I think he was sort of 
annoyed by the whole thing that you actually had to take this stuff to the point where he didn't even use them, uh, I believe, in the 1921 test run, right? No, I don't believe so. I don't think he did either in the 1922 expedition that followed where they actually did try to make Summit. Um, and it wasn't for years before he was like, okay, maybe oxygen's a good idea. Um, some of them even thought it was like a hindrance in general because it was an extra 30 pounds that you had to carry yeah. up this mountain. And if you watch, um, <clears throat> if you watch video of people climbing Everest today, especially as they get closer and closer to the top and there's less and less mm -hmm. oxygen. They even, get less chatty. Even, yeah, they do. <laughs> even they, they seem to like have regret for being where they are. Right but even with oxygen on, if you watch them, they'll take a step. So one foot and then they'll bring the other foot up and maybe they've mm -hmm. traversed a, a foot of Everest right then. And then they have to wait like 15, 30 seconds before they make the next one because they're that tired, because there's that wow. little oxygen. And that's with oxygen on. So these guys were trying these kind of ascents without oxygen. I, I can't imagine, like, you know, how you would even do that. And it's actually, it's not clear whether you really could summit Everest without oxygen, although I think people have tried and maybe even been successful. So I guess it would be clear. Yeah, so in 22... Um I believe Mallory and a couple of other climbers hit 26,800 feet, Man. Uh, which is remarkable before they decided to turn back. Uh, and again, this is without using oxygen on that 22 mm -hmm. uh, try. And then this is the part where I was a little bit confused. <clears throat> Maybe you can clear it up. <clears throat> when did the avalanche happen? Was that in 21 where uh, seven people were killed? No, yeah, so no. In 21, there was an avalanche that wiped out some of the camps they'd established but didn't hurt anybody. In okay. 22, they weren't as lucky, and seven Sherpa died in an avalanche. All right. And Mallory kind of considered himself at least partially responsible, even though he wasn't the only person who pushed for this last attempt for the summit. Um, he was one of them, and an avalanche was triggered by that third attempt and killed some of the people further down on the mountain when they were covered up by it. Yeah, and there are people, you know, who have looked back and kind of poo-pooed Mallory's um, – poo-pooed his uh, carelessness. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was carelessness. I don't think it was carelessness just because he was a careless person. I think it was a little more uh, his tenacious attitude sort of overrode good sense sometimes mm -hmm. is the way I took it. Mm -hmm. Is that how you took it? I think that was part of it, but I also get the impression that he was like just downright flighty. Oh, was he? <laughs> yeah, like there was a, he was in charge of the camera for the 1922 expedition, and apparently he put the film in backwards, but was taking yeah. pictures the whole time. And they didn't turn out because he didn't have the filming correctly. Like, that's yeah, classic uh, Mallory. That's an honest from mistake, what I, though. <laughs> sure. But if you do that, things like that over and over again, you start to develop a reputation as being flighty. I guess so. The, the thing I think is, cameras like operating a camera wasn't second nature at this point in history mm -hmm. and it's like just give this guy a camera i don't know i could see him just being like i don't even know what this thing is or how to really operate <laughs> it like don't don't give it to me and they're like well you kind of have to take it and he's like all right i'll do my best mm -hmm. i can't i, I mean i kind of created that narrative but <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good he, one he was good at mountain climbing he may not have been a 
good photographer. Okay, fair enough. But there's a very famous um, quote by a doctor, Tom Longstaff, who was the the doctor on the expedition in 1922, who said Mallory mm-hmm. was quite unfit to be placed in charge of anything, including himself. So, I mean, people definitely thought of him. I'm going to say flighty again, and I'm not judging. I'm pretty flighty myself. Um, Yumi would certainly tell you that. Um, but I, so I think I, I recognize it when I see it. Maybe that's what it is. Is Yumi your Dr. Longstaff? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm going to start calling her that now. <laughs> She'll be like, what are you talking about? I looked that up, too. Remember our surnames episode? I was like, oh, is that a dirty last name? But I know. That's what I thought. <laughs> it turns out if you were a bailiff or somebody involved in law enforcement, you would have then carried a- like a long <laughs> stick. Oh, okay. To probably beat people with, and that's where they got that name. So his ancestor gotcha. was involved in law enforcement. I looked it up. I went Longstaff, surname <laughs> Penis. and Dr. Longstaff definitely sounds like a born name. It definitely does. Uh, all right, so now let's go to 1924. Uh, the, the test runs had happened. The real attempts had happened. And then finally 1924 rolls around. Uh, they didn't just take the year off in 1923 because they – were tired. Uh, they didn't get funding. Like it costs a lot of money and these people aren't like bankrolling themselves. So the Mount Everest company uh, could not raise the money in 23. So they waited until 1924 when Mallory jumped up in class and said, me, 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 me mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Um, and almost didn't go though, because uh, one of his mates, George Finch, a fellow climber uh, was, I believe left off the list. And Mallory was like, if he's not going to go, I'm not there going to go. And they said, okay. And then he went, well, I still want to go. <laughs> he put on a fake mustache and put himself down as George Hallery. <laughs> exactly. So um, there was a guy who went, um, who was kind of a surprise selection. His name was Andrew Sandy Irving. Irvine, sorry. And um, Sandy Irvine was a student still. He was an engineering student. And that's actually one of the reasons they brought him along. He wasn't a schlub as far as mountaineering goes. He just was not nearly as experienced as most of the people on that 1924 expedition. But being an engineering student, he could fiddle and fuss with the uh, oxygen apparatus, which had in the— cameras, maybe? Yeah, probably. He knew how to put the film in the right direction. But— the, since I get the impression that since the 1921 and 22 expeditions, it had become clearer to these these um, these people on these expeditions, on the 1924 expedition, that oxygen was, in fact, like really important. And to have somebody who could make these, these um, rigs more efficient would be really, really valuable. So they brought Sandy Irving, Irvine along. Yeah, I also saw that Irvine was, uh, you know, despite his – Fiddler's reputation was strong as an ox. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's which huge. Which is an, another nice thing. If you see, there's a famous picture of he and uh, – or him and um, Mallory next to each other facing the camera, like posing for a picture. And he's uh, easily a full head uh, taller than Mallory was and about as wide too. So um, he was a big, big boy. Yeah, and Mallory was very handsome too, we should note. Yes. Um, Good looking dude. He really was. Very pretty, I think you could say. <laughs> a pretty man. Mm-hmm. And then one other note about Mallory on this to start off this 1924 expedition. Again, this is the third expedition to Everest, and he was the only member of this entire expedition who had been on all three expeditions, which again really underscores Mallory was obsessed with summiting Everest. That's right. So are we to June 1st now? I think so, man. 
All right, Mallory and uh, George Bruce make this first attempt. Uh, this one didn't work out when basically the Sherpa said, all right, we're not going any further. It's too dangerous. Uh, and they basically dropped their stuff and turned back. <laughs> so again, this, um, this one didn't work out, but uh, one of the positives is they established a camp at 25,000 feet, um, which I believe was, uh, was the tallest camp at the time or the highest camp. Okay, yeah. So that's, again... That's a huge success for a, a summit attempt, right? Even right. when more, more groundwork. The following day, another couple climbers, Edward Norton and T. Howard Somerville, um, made their own attempt on the summit. Norton kept going beyond Somerville, and he made it within a thousand feet of the summit of Everest, which, <clears throat> depending on your perspective, Man. sounds really close, but actually isn't, yeah. or is actually super close, even though it sounds well, far away. <laughs> I think it's pretty close. It is, but if you look at a map and see where 28,000 feet is and then where 29,000 feet is, uh, yeah, yeah, I get he you. He had a way to go, but far and away that was a, that was the record and it was uh it was a record that stood at least officially until uh Hillary and Norgay um summited Everest in 1953. So it was a big deal. But Norton and Somerville really paid for their attempt. Um Somerville uh he almost suffocated from a high-altitude cough, and then Norton developed snow blindness because they, they would wear um, goggles that were like yeah. basically sunglass goggles, and you had to wear them during the day, not just from the wind, but because the UV um, was really, really um, abundant because of the thin air up there. So mm -hmm. you would get what's called snow blindness. You would get uh, keratitis on your corneas, and that's what happened to Norton. He burned his corneas from the reflected sunlight because he didn't keep his goggles on long enough. And on the way back down, from 25,000 feet back down, uh, he had to be helped. Every footstep had to be placed by Sherpas uh, and the doctor um, on, the, on the trip. Every, foot, every footstep he made all the way back down out of the, the Everest area. That's amazing. It really is. All right. So on this third mm -hmm. attempt, uh, Mallory is, brought Irving. Uh, I'm sorry. Why do you keep saying that? I said it because you said it. <laughs> sorry. Brought Irvine along. <laughs> and uh, they were sending notes down. You know, they're sending messages back down with <laughs> Sherpas along the way, basically. Will you go with saying, him? <laughs> yeah, I love you. <laughs> uh, they were sending notes back down to the other camps, basically giving reports on what's going on, saying things are going well. Uh, the weather looks like we should be able to do it. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna try and do this like tomorrow or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so all the notes that were coming down were pretty positive. And um, basically everything we know about this comes from a gentleman, uh, a, geolo a gentleman geologist named Noel O'Dell. It was actually a pretty big hero in this story, too. Yeah, he was pretty awesome, actually. Um, and he lived to be a ripe old man. <laughs> Sorry, ripe old age. <laughs> um, he spelled really bad. Yeah, and he, there's a really cool interview with him from a Nova episode. I can't remember what it's called, but it's from like the 80s. And they interviewed Noel O'Dell about this. So he factors in big time in a minute. But O'Dell was, um, he went up to one of the high camps 
He, he wanted to look for fossils, being a geologist. He also brought up supplies of food and water to those higher camps to help the climbers on their way back down. And this was Very the cool. third attempt. Remember, the first attempt didn't work. Second attempt didn't work. It kind of resulted in disaster. And then this third attempt was going to be the last one. And Mallory said, hey, Irvine, why don't you come with me? We're going to try to make the summit of Everest. And there's something that you need to know about this third attempt. Mallory was, I think, 37, maybe by this time. And as far as mountaineers and climbers go, especially back then, he was old. This was probably going to be his last expedition to Everest. And this attempt for the summit was the last attempt on this expedition. Ergo, this was Mallory's last shot at summiting Everest. And he was setting out from the highest camp that had ever been established. Basically, I believe it's the highest camp still today on that north route. All right. That sounds like a great cliffhanger. No pun intended. (laughs) So let's take our final break here and we'll wrap up the story right after this. Stuff you should know. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now, he's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? 
Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so uh, Mallory is on his last attempt as a human to do the thing that he was obsessed with since he was, you know, a young, late teenager. Right. Beautiful uh, late teenager. Beautiful. So, so handsome. Uh, geologist Noel Odell is up there again. He is he is doing sort of the cool, groovy Appalachian Trail hangout dude thing that trail is cooking magic. for people. Yeah, he's doing <laughs> some trail magic up there. <laughs> um, and at 12.50, he sees Mallory and Irvine on the Northeast Ridge but they're a few hours, and this is really key, they're a few hours behind schedule from where they should be. Right. And there's a very narrow window, again, for like what time of day you can pull this off and then safely get back down. So to be a few hours behind schedule is a big deal on whether or not you're going to survive, basically. Mm-hmm. So what he says, and we'll just go ahead and read the quote, uh, what he says he saw is the following. Uh, The entire summit ridge and final peak of Everest were unveiled. My eyes became fixed on one tiny black spot beneath a rock step in the ridge. The black spot moved. Another black spot became apparent and moved up the snow to join the other on the crest. The first then approached the great rock step and shortly emerged at the top. The second did likewise. So right after that, Chuck, apparently the clouds came back. And those two black spots that were he took to be Irvine and Mallory disappeared from view. And that was, if that was Irvine and Mallory, the last time anybody saw them. And Odell would have been the last to see them, which will become a crucial thing later on, as we'll see. But um, Odell uh, kind of waited for them to come back down to the camps. Remember, he was in the high camps, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and then he started to get really worried. And here's where he became a hero, like you were saying earlier. Yeah, so Odell is, uh, again, he's not down there at at sea level. He is hanging out up there, trying to do the trail magic thing. (laughs) He's all of a sudden worried, and... He he basically, from Camp 6, starts hiking around trying to find these guys and and doesn't leave. He, do, he just keeps staying and he keeps making these ascents. And I believe like two days in a row made an ascent over, what, like 26,000 feet? Yeah, a couple of them. And he'd go back to camp because he had to, again, to survive. But then he would strike out like as soon as he could the next day to look for them. 
I mean, that's why he's one of the heroes. Yeah, exactly. And, like, again, I don't even know if he had oxygen at that point. So he spent a couple of days way up there looking for them. And finally, from the high camp, he signaled back down to the lower camps, the base camp. And there was apparently a prearranged signal uh, that they had had, um, come up with for this third summit uh, attempt. And um, uh, Odell laid it out. It was six sleeping bags laid out in a cross, which meant death, that they had died, that they hadn't made it. And so in reply, the guy who led the um, the expedition had a, a return signal saying, like, give up hope, come back down. And very sadly, Odell did as, as he was instructed and came back down without Irvine, without Mallory, who remained up on the mountain as far as anyone knew. Yeah, and at this point... Um he had been up there for, and this is over 23,000 feet. He had been up there for 11 days. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, surely no, uh, I don't think that had been done before, right? That's no picnic caught in a snowstorm. That's some serious stuff. Yeah, and there's no way that these guys, I mean, they were up there for two nights, and you're not going to survive one night. So right. it was it was pretty clear those sleeping bags had to come out at that point. Yeah, and so they said, you know, um, they were really kind of unhappy on that on that way back down, which, again, I don't think we said. If, if you're coming up a mountain, you have to acclimate over weeks, little by little. And I believe you have to do roughly the same thing coming back down. So these guys had to basically have this party where two people had been lost on their summit attempt, and they were glum. But at the same time, they realized, like, you know, Mallory and Irvine, had kind of embodied the spirit of adventure and just trying and even risking your life for, you know, this this, this noble attempt at, at something no one else had ever done. So it was kind of a bittersweet thing their loss was. It wasn't entirely nothing but tragic. There was some silver lining to it in the way that Mallory was remembered and thought of. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and from that moment forward there, you know, Ed kind of makes it sound like the the consensus is that they never reach the top. And after reading all this stuff and a lot of other opinions, I don't think I don't think that's true at all. Yeah. I think there is still debate on whether or not they actually made it to the top. And there are a bunch of cool little clues that kind of lead you down one way or the other along the way. Yeah, one of them, Chuck, was uh, Odell and what he saw. And there's a couple of things you need to know about Odell. Number one, he was a geologist. And a lot of people say he just mistook some rocks for Irvine and Mallory, the little tiny dots he thought he saw moving. He's a geologist, making him very unlikely to mistake rocks for people. And then secondly, he was well known to have really good eyesight. Apparently, he didn't need glasses until he was in his 90s. So those two things combined make it seem like he was probably the best possible eyewitness Uh, around. And Odell went to his grave saying, I saw them. They were moving. It was them. But exactly where he saw them kind of came up for grabs. Yeah. So there are these uh, three cliffs sort of, you know, if you go this route, there are three cliffs to get to the top uh, and they call them steps, step one, step two, step three. Mm -hmm. They didn't know about these steps until they got there, obviously, because no one had done this yet. And from what he was talking about, he saw them on the second step. But there are a lot of people today that said, no, I think he probably saw them on the first step. At one point in his life, he said that it was the first step, but then he went back and said, no. And I don't know if he was just sort of 
a victim of kind of uh, listening to what other people had to say. Mm -hmm. But apparently later in life, he went back and was adamant that it was the second step that he saw them on. Oh, really? Okay, cool. So here's the thing. If you were in the climbing community and you believe that um, at the very least Mallory, if not Mallory and Irvine, made it to the top of Everest on that 1924 expedition on that third attempt— the reason you think that is because you believe that Odell did see them climb up that second step because that second step was the last great obstacle to the top. And had yeah. they made it up the second step, nothing would have stopped Mallory from continuing on to hit the summit. Knowing that it, he, he probably would not ever make it down alive, he still would have kept going on. So that's that's what a lot of people think, and the people who think that he actually did make it, uh, kind of point to Odell's eyewitness statements. Yeah, and that's in, in that interview when he was, what, he was 97 years old, mm -hmm. Odell himself says that, you know, there would have been nothing that would have stopped Mallory and Irvine, he believes, mm -hmm. Um, even though dusk was approaching and they probably knew it was, a, I guess, a, a suicide mission at that point. Right. He, his feeling was that there's no way they would have stopped, too. Yeah, because we didn't say when those clouds came around, they brought with them a blizzard, too. So it was really terrible conditions. They were way late in the day. There was basically no chance if they summited that they could get back to that highest camp in time for surviving the night. But that would not have stopped them. Because they they just would they just would have kept going. That's just what Mallory would have done. And pretty much everybody agrees on that. The distinction is whether he was on the first step or the second step. Because if he was just on the first step, he still had that second step ahead of him. He might not have made it. If he made the second step, he definitely summited. That seems to be what the consensus is. All right. So you've got that. We can park that to the side. Uh, in the subsequent years on different uh, expeditions, there have been little bits and pieces of evidence uh, found along the way. Uh, one in 1933, when Irvine's uh, axe, his ice axe, was found. And, you know, you're not going to just leave your ice axe behind. Right. So basically, they concluded that um, something happened that that made Irvine drop this ice axe, but they recovered it in 33. And then in 1975, uh, there were some Chinese uh, Chinese climbers who made uh, a successful summit all the way to the top. And they were the only ones that could have gone this way because, like we said earlier, the Chinese route was shut down basically to Americans. And so it's not like that people before the 1975 would have been taking this route. I think there was one American group that that snuck in and did so illegally. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the Chinese climbers said, I found an English dead to another climber. Um, China has always denied this and said that that's not true. Uh, and that it was a, a misunderstanding. And then um, that climber actually, uh, his name was Wang uh, Hungbao, died the next day in an avalanche. So there was never like any follow-up with him. In a really interesting, ironic twist, Chuck, Hungbao translates to, to Longstaff in English. <laughs> no, really? I thought I'd get a bigger laugh out of that. We'll just okay. edit that out. <laughs> Well, it was believable enough to where I couldn't quite tell. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's all this intrigue that's kind of gathering around this, this idea that the Chinese um, had found uh, at least one dead Englishman on their side of the mountain, the north side, the Tibetan side, where they shouldn't have been, which means that, yeah, it had to have been Irvine 
or Mallory. So there was an expedition um, that came, well, there was a 1991 expedition that found an old oxygen bottle that was almost certainly Mallory or Irvine's. And then all of that information kind of came together to um, support a 1999 Nat Geo expedition to actually find Irvine or Mallory. And they actually did. They found one of them. And at first they thought it was Irvine, right? Yeah, they did, but they they found Mallory. He was uh, frozen. He was sunbleached. Uh, his body was very well-preserved. The, the items on him were very well-preserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found him severely injured. Well, <laughs> they found a couple of things. They found that he had a severely broken leg and some uh, some rope trauma, like ligature stuff, around his waist. But what they really found um, that was severe was the cause of death which was a golf ball size hole in his forehead. Yeah, they and it was a puncture wound. So they think it's possible as he was falling that his ice axe bounced off of a rock and into his head, yeah. which that'd what be pretty merciful on the way down if you think about it, if that killed Maybe, him instantly. Yeah. Because they said that his his foot was almost broken off, that, that break was so bad. And then rope trauma too. Imagine a rope yanking on you because they found the rope still tied around his waist. Um, but I've that, had that happen actually. <laughs> I can't imagine I it. mean, it's awful, right? It's like falling on your tailbone, but times a million. And uh, the other end of the rope was snapped off. And I saw a climber say because of that snap, it must have been tied to something really immobile like a rock rather than Irvine. So that suggested that Mallory had sent Irvine back and tried to make the summit himself, which uh, a lot of people kind of give to his credit that he wasn't willing to risk Irvine's life, only his own. I find it very strange that I said that that happened to me and you didn't even ask what that was about. I was on a roll. It's very strange. What happened? I'm not even going to I'm not going to tell you now. What happened? I, n- no one gets to know. <laughs> All right. That would be the great mystery of this episode. <laughs> okay. Uh so the two big clues here as to whether or not he made it are well, one big clue was he didn't have that picture of his wife on him. This is the picture that he took with him everywhere mm-hmm. that he vowed to place at the top of the mountain. And it wasn't on him. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, it's not on him because he actually did maybe by himself or maybe with Irvine make it to the summit Mm -hmm. and place that picture there. And it's not like you would have necessarily found that picture years later. It very probably would have blown away or, you know, been destroyed by the elements over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I don't know how I feel about that clue. Um, I think it's considering everything was found really – uh, in good condition on him mm-hmm. and the, that he didn't have it is pretty interesting to think about. I'll just say that. I like that clue, too. Um, there's also uh, a missing camera. They took a camera with them for that third attempt, a Kodak Vest Pocket Camera, VPK. And it's like one of those old cameras with the accordion that you pull out, but it is a really small, like, pocket-sized version. And had they made it to the summit, they absolutely would have taken a photograph from the summit. And if you could just find that camera, then you could conceivably, because it had been in deep freeze conditions for all these years, it's possible using modern techniques that you could develop that film and solve this mystery once and for all. But the problem is this, Chuck. The camera's missing, and so is Irvine, because there was an expedition not too long ago, a few years back, that set out to look for Irvine, this other guy, because 
where the Chinese um, expedition said that they found the dead English, that is nowhere near where Mallory was found. So they figure that they found Irvine. But when they went, when this expedition, I think a couple of years ago, went back to find Irvine, there was nothing there. His body was not exactly where it should be, nothing there. And so this rumor has kind of come up over the years that the Chinese actually found him and brought him back down the mountain without telling anybody. That's right. That is the rumor. And that they got that camera and they kind of botched uh, the film trying to uh, get it developed and process those pictures, and that was a big embarrassment. And so they w- will take that secret to their graves. Yeah, and another explanation is that the the 1960 Chinese expedition to the top of the North Face was the first to summit the North Face, and that they were protecting national pride because they found evidence on that camera on that film when they did develop it that that um, Mallory had made it to the top. Who knows? The thing is, we'll never know, right? Ever. The thing that we will know, I think, eventually, though, Chuck, hopefully, is what happened with your rope trauma. <laughs> that will go to the grave with me. Oh, man, I really botched that, like the Chinese mountain climbers botched pr- processing that film. Okay, long staff. <laughs> Long-winded is more like it. Uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. All right, everybody. Well, since Chuck refuses to tell us about his rope trauma story, I guess we have nothing left but listener mail. Uh, this is uh, from the Silly String app. This is Myth Busted. Uh, hey, guys. Just wanted to point out that Josh repeated a widely spread myth about telegrams <laughs> in the Silly String episode that stop was used because punctuation cost extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, this myth has been busted. The real story is Morse code originally had only capital letters and no punctuation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's generally not much of a problem, but during the First World War, when the telegrams were widely used in the military, a misunderstood messages, uh, message could be disastrous. So the custom arose of using the word stop between sentences in military telegrams so that any ambiguous phrases could not be misinterpreted. Mm. Uh, caught on with the public, even after punctuation was introduced, people continued fashionably using stop between sentences, uh, even though they didn't have to. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Thanks for the great show. And that... It's from Dave. It is very interesting, Dave. I like both stories. Okay? <laughs> They're both great. <laughs> yeah. Everyone wins. And also, I'm going to posit that you have mentioned before that you've gone rappelling as a Boy Scout and that it happened somewhere on Stone Mountain. Not true. The mystery continues. Whatever. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Dave did and maybe take a crack at what happened with Chuck and the rope and the trauma, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast.com at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.